This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. This is Philip Lance, your host for today's interview with authors Noreen Giffney and Eve Watson about their book, Clinical Encounters in Sexuality, Psychoanalytic Practice and Queer Theory, published in 2017 by Punctum Books. By the way, I usually say welcome to the New Books in Psychoanalysis podcast, but this time I'm keeping it indefinite because this interview may find its way onto other New Books channels, such as the New Books in Gender Studies and New Books in Critical Theory. This is an interdisciplinary book edited by Noreen and Eve, with a host of fantastic contributors from the fields of psychoanalysis, culture studies, and queer theory. Noreen Giffney works at, as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist in private practice, and she is a lecturer in counseling at the University of Ulster in Northern Ireland. She has published a lot of books and journal articles on psychoanalysis, gender, sexuality, and cultural studies. Eve Watson is a psycho, also a psychoanalytic practitioner working in Dublin, Ireland, and she teaches in the graduate programs at Dublin universities. She trained in the Lacanian psychoanalytic tradition, and her areas of publication and special interest include theories of sexuality and gender, critical theory, film, and cultural studies. So welcome to the program, Eve and Noreen. Uh, thanks very much, Philip. And uh, just to say, uh, on behalf of Eve and myself, uh, we're really grateful for the invitation to have a conversation with you today. And as someone who has been listening to the new books and psychoanalysis series for years, uh, I was personally very excited to receive your invitation. Um, I drive a lot for work and I listen to the podcasts and I really like uh, I really like the engagements that you have with the authors. They really uh, engage in, enliven the book for me. So I'm looking forward to this. Thank you very much. I'm I'm excited about presenting this to our listeners, many of whom probably really don't have have never thought about this subject or may not know much at all about queer theory or what in the heck it has to do with psychoanalysis. So I think it'll be really something new and stimulating for our listeners. And I want to before um I'm just a, a few questions down the line I'm going to ask you what is queer theory for people who just are beginning with the basics. But why don't we begin um, let's see. By the way, where are you two? What, are you in Dublin or other parts of Ireland? Uh, Philip, I'm in, this is Eve. I'm in Dublin. I'm speaking to you from, from Dublin today. And I'm speaking to you today from Donegal, which is in the north of Ireland. And then I work in Northern Ireland, which is across the border uh, between the north and south of Ireland. Oh, wow. That is so cool that we can have these cross-Atlantic conversations so easily nowadays. <clears throat> okay, well, let's begin by hearing about how this book came to be. Um, and what was what was your objective? Why did you want to create this particular book? Thank you, Philip, uh, so much for the opportunity to speak about uh, clinical encounters in, in sexuality. Um, this is, a, I suppose, a question that pertains to our desire. What did we want to do in putting these two discourses together, uh, psychoanalysis and specifically clinical psychoanalysis and queer theory? This had not been done before. And, um, and what we also wanted to do was to put... Um, a, a multiplicity of psychoanalytic schools uh, together as well. So this, uh, so this was our our, our project. Uh, 
maybe I could tell you a little bit about how this began and how this came into being, yeah. if, if that would be okay. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. So so this all began in 2009. So this has been an eight-year clinical uh, psychoanalytic uh, project. And it began in 2009 when Noreen approached me with an idea. Um, and you could say this was our first encounter. And the idea uh, for, uh, that she uh, came to me with was why not put together for the first time uh, uh, two discourses in a series of discursive encounters, the two discourses being queer theory and clinical psychoanalysis in a collection Mm -hmm. that we would edit. And I've always been interested in interdisciplinarity. um, And and this was a new idea uh, of of Noreen's uh, uh, to put these two discourses who are, let's say, well acquainted on a theoretical level, to put them together uh, in a sustained engagement around the question of clinical practice. Um, and I, and since my university days, I've been very interested in queer theory. I was actually introduced to queer theory as an undergraduate. Um, and uh, so Noreen and I collaborated. I said yes. And it's been uh, it's been very fruitful. Um, and this also comes out of my own interest in interdisciplinarity, fit, which I think fits well within the Freudian Lacanian tradition uh, out of which I, I did my my training. You, 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 as I'm sure you know, Freud was a devoted and wide reader of philosophy and literature and anthropology, religion, uh, and more. And uh, and indeed, uh, Lacan uh, was as well. Okay, I want to just interrupt and and say so. The first time that we're bringing really together queer theory and clinical psychoanalysis, I guess that's an important distinction because. I think then you also said that queer theory and sort of, I don't know, academic psychoanalysis, those two are from, there's familiar, that's been a realm that's that's uh, been explored before, I guess, in books and journals. But mm-hmm. is, is there a distinction here between the clinical and, can you say more about that? Yes, I, 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 certainly uh, uh, sexuality studies, gay and lesbian studies, sexuality studies and queer theory has, has drawn from uh, psychoanalysis uh, for for many years now, um, uh, and has done so theoretically. Um, and uh, what we wanted to do was to add in uh, this the clinical component. Um, and indeed, there are different ways of thinking about that, as I think emerges uh, in the book. Um, so this would add in that dimension, which is uh, one of the distinguishing dimensions of psychoanalysis. It is it is a praxis. It is both theory and practice. Practice, um, and we wanted to introduce that in to um, uh, to see what that encounter would produce, uh, and would it produce um, uh, something new? Uh, would it uh, allow us to ask uh, uh, new questions? Would it allow us to uh, to come up with uh, with uh, with different answers, etc.? So this was very much from its from its inception um, a project uh, that uh, didn't have a guarantee. Uh, in terms of what it was going to do. It was designed, and and I think Noreen is going to speak a little bit more about that, uh, 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 to be a series of encounters, uh, the outcome of which we would not know until uh, until indeed the book book was finished. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So, um, yeah, I I read your afterward, Eve, today. Um, I just finished it this morning, and... um, it was really nice. It brought a lot sort of together for me. I think some people would have put it at the beginning of the book, but, but let's, so let's talk about how the book is put together with it's, it's um, got a kind of a distinctive structure or, or way it's put together with different sections. And so I guess Eve is going to, or uh, Noreen is going to tell us about that. Yeah. Um, I suppose, uh, as Eve said, uh, this book has come out of an eight-year clinical psychoanalytic and interdisciplinary research project. Um, and just just further maybe to what Eve has just said there a moment ago about how the book came into being, um, I suppose one of the things that I noticed when I became involved in clinical psychoanalysis, I had worked in gender and sexuality for years, um, was how clinicians 
who worked psychoanalytically could be so curious and thoughtful about the minutiae of psychic life, um, the smallest things, uh, but that when it came to sexuality, there tended to be a reification and all curiosity seemed to fall away. Um, And that wasn't true of everybody, but it was true of quite a number of clinicians. And I suppose I was interested to see what we could do with this book uh, in order to, I suppose, unhinge uh, some of those sticking points uh, and to open up that reification to thinking. So in order to do that, I suppose we organize the book in a particular way as you as you say that's not not always usual um the book uh, includes 30 chapters by 32 invited contributors and these include academic theorists uh, working in gender and sexuality studies uh, but also practitioners of psychoanalysis from a number of different psychoanalytic traditions so uh, freudian kleinian lacanian independent relational jungian and so on And the book uses then queer theory. The book is an encounter between queer theory and psychoanalysis, but it's also an encounter between a variety of different psychoanalytic traditions about sexuality. And it uses queer theory as an interlocutor for those various different traditions to come together uh, because queer theory is, and we'll get into this a bit more as as we talk, but queer theory is at the forefront of theoretical uh, discussions about sexuality. Uh, But it's also a discourse that is wary, very wary, of psychoanalysis as a clinical practice because of the history of psychoanalysis and how it's treated uh, LGBT people um, and also as a discourse. So we used a number of structuring devices uh, in the book. Uh, first of all, it's structured around a series of questions that we pose uh, and that occur in my introduction uh, for the reader literally Uh, So there are four questions that we ask the reader to keep in mind as the reader reads. Uh, The book is also arranged in a series of three sections, each of which uh, facilitates the reader engaging in a series of encounters with a variety of different discourses and ultimately uh, with uh, their own uh, views about sexuality. And the book is also framed by an introduction by myself and and an afterword by Eve, uh, which... uh, both function as the facilitating environment. They frame the book, but they function as a facilitating environment for the reader's um, interaction with the text. And as you said, it might be usual for an afterword like Eve's to actually be the introduction. Um, But in this uh, book, the function of it is to open up a space for the reader uh, to find their own way um, and then further to be some containment, I suppose, provided by the uh, by the afterward. Um, and I suppose the reason why we have those various different strategies, um, structuring devices put in place, is um, that the book is. Uh, I suppose it's it's set up to foster a self-reflective attitude in readers about sexuality, which historically has tended toward reification, including in psychoanalysis, um, and particularly in, in psychoanalysis as it appears in the clinic. And also the book is performative in style. Uh, so that means that the setup of the book creates the conditions it describes. So the book literally, uh, as well as discursively, opens up a space for clinical readers to engage in an encounter with their own views on sexuality uh, and how they might be bringing predetermined beliefs into the consulting room. Um, Can I interrupt you just, just a moment. You, you mentioned the reification of sexuality. Maybe you should explain what, what you're meaning when you say that before you go on with these different sections of the book. Yeah, sure. I suppose um, when I talk about reification, I suppose there's a number of different ways we might think about that. I, I mean, the, I suppose psychoanalytic term concretization would be relevant here in mm-hmm. terms of um, thoughts being present about sexuality. Uh, thoughts are usually, um, when they're reified, they're usually picked up from books that people have read or from clinicians who have taught them or analysts or supervisors. And then they're, reproduces, they're reproduced without thinking them through. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thoughts are present, but not the thinking um, mm-hmm. apparatus to actually facilitate um it being wondered about. So when something is reified, I would think that um, there is a sense in which um, people, yeah, people reproduce what they have heard and read rather than being able to wonder about it for themselves. Especially with something like sexuality, which is so charged. There's a, oh, probably a temptation to quickly get 
a handle on it and uh, close things down uh, with that process of reification. So, so yeah, clearly this book is working against that. And um, Philip, and so Philip anyway, what Maureen, I, so, uh, yeah. describing there, I think, is is a way of of describing the process in which people make assumptions and hold biases that are that uh-huh. are unquestioned. These givens that Uh that people approach, particularly the field of sexuality, which we've identified as one that is particularly prone to reification. Um, So people have ideas in a way, as opposed to, you know, working, thinking these things uh, through. Uh, And that is Uh the aim of the book is to shake to shake those up for for psychoanalysts uh, and uh, and for for. Uh, for for those who work in the area of uh, of, of sexuality studies and and gender studies and those who are interested in those areas. Yes. Okay. So, do, do you want to go on, Noreen, with specifically the the three different sections, sort of how they work? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So there are three sections in the book. Um, section one features six chapters on uh, key themes in queer theory uh, by academic theories of sexuality and they work uh, mainly in the arts and humanities and we gave them each a theme so identity desire pleasure perversion ethics and discourse so each of them were given a a theme and we asked them to write about those uh, topics from the perspective of queer theory but keeping in mind how queer theory in the instance of identity, for example, has been influenced by psychoanalysis to write something about that. Uh, We didn't direct them to write about any particular tradition of psychoanalysis. And we asked them as well to keep in mind an audience of psychoanalytic clinicians who may not be familiar with uh, career theory. And then we left them to it. Um, Then we collected all of those uh, chapters and we uh, invited uh, a number of clinical responses to them. So section two then includes 14 of those clinical responses written by 16 clinicians. A couple of the chapters are co-written. Um, and these are by practicing psychoanalysts and psychoanalytic tradi- uh, psychotherapists from different traditions uh, who work with adults and or children and adolescents. And we asked them to read the question, read the chapters by the career theorists and to respond to them and think about whether not if, but whether uh, those chapters might be useful for clinical practice or clinical thinking. Uh, And then they were left uh, to write whatever they needed to write there. And then we collected all of those and we invited a number of uh, people who are very familiar with both queer theory and psychoanalysis. And those responses are much briefer. We asked... um, people to comment on the encounters as they encountered them themselves. And so section three features seven short commentaries of about 1,500 words on the nature of the encounters enacted by the book um, by some of them are clinicians, some of them are theorists, but they're both familiar. They're familiar with both discourses. And in addition to that, um, we also invited a psychoanalytic practitioner who is also an art theorist to write about the encounter with the cover uh, of the book, uh, because that's uh-huh. the first encounter okay. that the reader has. Um, so I suppose the, the way the book is set up, just more generally about the idea of the sections, is that it's set up that the reader has a number of encounters with a number of dis- different discourses, um, that none of the authors of the chapters got to see one another's um, responses to their chapters, and so that everybody saw the final piece, if you like, when it was published. I particularly like those those short ones at the end. Those were just really f- fun. In fact, sort of my, my response to this whole book, I, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, in anticipating this interview, I've, I've keep finding myself kind of smiling. I, the, the book was fun, um, at least at times. There were other, there are some kind of chapters that get into a kind of academic discourse that I wasn't completely able to follow, but then then the next chapter would be completely sort of accessible to me. And so I think it's going to depend on where people are um, in, in being uh, exposed to some of these kinds of uh, writing and thinking. 
Um, but I think there's something for everyone in it, even if they're very new to it. Um, do you guys have? Yeah. That's really good to that's really good to hear, Philip. Uh, it's it's uh, it certainly um, uh, our, our our aim was uh, to facilitate the creation of something that people could come at at whatever level they're at. Um, uh, people do not have to be very well versed in queer theory, I think, to approach the book. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be a psychoanalytic practitioner. Um, and an interest in these areas uh, is is a more than sufficient uh, place from which to start. Um, and, uh, and certainly, um, as I say, it's good to hear about the question of fun. Uh, we we uh, uh, you know, that and that's not to belie, I think, the, the seriousness of, uh-huh. of the project. Um, but in in our in our world today, for example, politically, um, uh, you know, we, we think of, of certain uh, uh, leaders in our Western world who, who who don't laugh and don't have any fun, for example, and this worries us. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, in that, as I say, this is. Uh, this is a, 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 a way, a mode of interrogation, isn't it? The ability to uh, to approach something um, with uh, – and something is asked of us that we may not be quite sure of, uh, and sometimes that response is a chuckle uh-huh. or a – Yeah, and I appreciate your reference to the seriousness too, because um, I don't know. I'm thinking myself if I'd gone into psycho into analysis maybe 25 or 30 years earlier, I would have had a very different experience with psychoanalysis in terms of them wanting to cure me or or pathologizing me, and. Um, so just remembering that when people come to us um, as practitioners, clinicians, and bringing us their most sort of intimate parts of their lives and delicate and how we're going to handle their sexuality um, can be so life-giving and even fun, or it can be tremendously hurtful as psychoanalysis has been to people in the past. So that's my little editorializing. But let's get into um, this question, what is queer theory? I was at a party recently talking to a hedge fund guy, and I said, oh, I'm reading this book on psychoanalysis and queer theory. And he said, what's queer theory? And I I had to sort of stop and you know fumble around a little bit. I did get somewhere with that, with an answer. But, but how would you two um, answer that? Um, well, I suppose uh, queer theory, um, one, one of the things about queer theory is it's uh, very well known for resisting attempts at uh, definition. Um, and resistance is, I suppose, one of its major um, major identifiers, perhaps. Um, nevertheless, having said that, it's the words, the words queer theory um describe a number of different approaches to looking at sexuality, particularly sexual norms, uh, sexual identities, pleasures, desires. Um, Queer theory is, while it's an academic discourse and and it can often be very difficult, um, I suppose, to engage with if you're not familiar with the discourse itself, um, although it is an academic discourse and has attained some respectability in the academy, although it's, there's always resistance to it, it's also um, a form of activism and uh, came from activist, really developed out of activist um, resistances, uh, groups like Queer Nation, Outrage, uh, the Lesbian Avengers, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power Act Up, um, and their attempts to... I suppose get um, to unleash some of the the rage or the anger that was being felt by people um, being ignored uh, during the AIDS crisis uh, and when people were being gay bashed uh, and people were were not uh, being held responsible for that. So I suppose queer theory is a highly politicized discourse. Saying that, um, and it's very concerned with. Um, looking at uh, biased attitudes relating to sexuality where certain acts, identities, pleasures and desires are seen as more socially acceptable or normal or natural or moral, um, particularly uh, where heterosexuality or um, 
op, you know, so-called opposite sex uh, desires would be seen as more acceptable. So it's it's very much about unpicking those uh, attitudes that are being uh, presented as if they are the way the attitudes that are being presented as if they are just the way it is. Um, but while they're being presented as if they are just the way it is, they're actually putting forward um, unspoken motives that are generally about saying that certain people are good and other people are bad. Um, I suppose queer theory engages very much with um attempts to set up a charm circle or a hierarchy of sexual identities, acts, desires, um, where certain sex acts or certain identities are seen again as being uh, morally repugnant or morally acceptable, uh, while others are not. Um, so normativity, I suppose, so I suppose there would be four terms that I would see queer theory as engaging mostly with identity, you know, uh, trying to help people to reflect on why they identify in the way that they do. Uh, normativity, as I was saying, these kind of latent normative attitudes or morally biased attitudes um, and unpicking them in, in the manifest uh, content of material. Relationality, how we relate to ourselves and others. Uh, and also discourse, the fact that uh, words actually do have a performative power and can impact on the lives of people in horrible ways. Yeah, and those are four things which so important to the whole work of psychoanalysis. I'm trying to like go through them again. Um, uh, what were the four again? Um, uh, ident- identity, yeah. normativity, relationality, uh-huh. and discourse. Okay, yeah. So anyway, I think people can begin to see how we're in a realm of things that psychoanalysis deals with. But um, so, so that's a sense of um, why people in the psychoanalytic world what we might gain from um, learning more about queer theory. And after reading this book, of course, it becomes, I, I see how it's it's not just uh, uh, an accidental, sort of a luxury. It's it's sort of a necessity, I think, nowadays to, for people in the psychoanalytic world to be very familiar with um, the challenges, challenging questions that queer theory raises. What would you say to somebody who's on the other side of the table who might be very steeped in um, culture studies, queer theory, uh, what can they, is psychoanalysis relevant to them um, nowadays? Well, uh, Philip, I, uh, you know, would say that I, what the book attempts to do uh, it would be several things such as to, you know, to locate psychoanalysis, I think, in the 21st century and to reflect on and I th- what I think we can describe as new sexual realities. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Danny Nobis's chapter in particular, uh, where he talks about the, the importance of psychoanalysis, of, of keeping up to date uh, with developments in, in the field of sexuality. Um, and so, you know, certainly um, there's work to be done uh, for psychoanalysis to keep up to date with the, the ever-changing and expanding 21st century sexual lexicon. And it has been accused of being out of step with contemporary sexuality, with its ideas about the Oedipus complex, the electric complex, the paternal metaphor perversion, the drives and homosexuality, and so on. So uh, so we wanted to uh, um, uh, uh, allow for psychoanalysis to be relevant uh, today. Um, and, um, um, and and we think uh, we think there's a good case to be uh, made for that. And it, it, one of the, the things we wanted to highlight is that you know, psych- we'd be better off saying psychoanalyses rather than psychoanalysis, because not only are there different schools of psychoanalysis, uh, and uh, quite a number of those are represented in the book, but the schools also. Um, in terms of the history of psychoanalysis um, and uh, what I would describe as the troubled history um, between psychoanalysis and homosexuality, um, 
not all uh, psychoanalytic schools approached this in the same way. Um, and so I think what the book does is it, it draws out the distinction between, for example, institutionalized psychoanalysis uh, and uh, certain uh, schools of thought uh, that may uh, and indeed did um, uh, treat homosexuality uh, with with uh, with uh, very problematic uh, normalizing uh, approaches. So what the book uh, does is, and I think this is important, is it acknowledges this troubled history. Um, it says it, it acknowledges it, and I think this tension. Is, is evident in the book. Uh, uh, this tension that uh, uh, is there as a result of, um, uh, and I think it has to do with, with I mean, if, if we think about uh, 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 the history of psychoanalysis, particularly after World War Two, after the death of Freud and the tide of emigration to the West, mainly to the Americas and the UK, the psychoanalysts became preoccupied with fitting in to their new domiciles, and and there ensued uh, an effort to domesticate, um, uh, some would say to domesticate the unconscious, but certainly the field of the sexual, uh, particularly by new forms of psychoanalysis like ego psychology, which became prominent in the psychoanalytic institutions. And these approaches uh, judged homosexuality to be non-normal, uh, and they effectively deviated from Freud's principles and gay and lesbian analysands suffered from reprobate practices which deemed them perverse or psychotic on the basis of their sexual orientation. Um, and so, for example, Ona Nirenberg's chapter in the book uh, takes steps to, to, to acknowledge this history, uh, but also to propose that there is a haunting um, uh, that has occurred in the field of uh, queer queer theory um, as a result of of, of uh, 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 an unfinished mourning process, uh, for example, um, uh, around this uh, deeply troubling uh, history. So, um, so uh, with with this acknowledgement. Um, it 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 uh, it is uh, hoped um, that um, that the discursive encounters um, uh, will be you know, more open uh, between uh, between the two discourses, uh, and, uh, and 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 certainly I hope the book um, uh, suggests and, and and offers for 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 uh, for those uh, working in the field of of. Uh, of cultural studies um, and social studies, a chance to think about psychoanalysis um, a little bit differently. I think also just what Eve was saying there, just in, in as regards you know queer theory or cultural studies more broadly, that um, one of the things that has come out of the book, which you've probably seen yourself, Philip, is that the queer theory chapters tend to draw on one tradition of psychoanalysis above all others, which is Lacanian psychoanalysis, coming from the work of Jacques Lacan and his various uh, interlocutors. And the other, so psychoanalysis, uh, so Lacanian psychoanalysis, because in the universities, Lacanian psychoanalysis tends to be what is taught takes the place of psychoanalysis, more generally you've referred to psychoanalyses. So I suppose one of the things that I think queer theorists or cultural studies critics can learn from this book is the fact that there are many different approaches to psychoanalysis. Even though people are aware of that, they tend to only draw on one. Um, so it'll open up, I think, a space for people to go and read other um, traditions. But also people tend, in queer theory anyway, uh, to... Uh, mostly read, and I, I mentioned in the introduction that I wrote, but they mostly read um, particular queer theorists like people like Judith Butler, Eve Sedgwick, Tim Dean, Leo Bersani, Lee Edelman. There's there's quite a number of them who use psychoanalysis. And people tend to read their work and how they interpret Freud, Lacan, Klein, whoever it might be, rather than actually going back and reading the psychoanalyst for themselves. And I don't know whether it's because I was trained first as a historian, where you always go back and read the primary sources. The secondary sources are what opens up the discourse for you, but you go back to the primary sources. But I think it's an invitation, the book, mm -hmm. for people to actually go back and uh, 
pick up psychoanalysis from its actual source um, and that while there are perhaps some problematic elements to it sometimes they're magnified in critique because that's just the nature of writing uh, that people tend to, be, to have to stake out a position and to argue it um, so I think it, it offers uh, cultural studies critics that as well and just in relation to that Eve you'll remember we did an event in the Freud Museum in London just one of the things that um one of the speakers said, which was just, which has stayed with me, and I, I think is really interesting, is that um, Lisa, Professor Lisa Braitzer from Birkbeck University of London, she said that she felt that the reason queer theory keeps on coming to psychoanalysis, even though it has a really ambivalent kind of love-hate relationship with psychoanalysis, is because queer theory doesn't actually have a theory of sexuality. Um and I think mm-hmm. for me, having worked in queer theory, I would think queer theory is very much about resistance and it's it's very useful for that, um, not allowing yourself to be subsumed by the other, but always trying to leave a space for thinking f- about yourself. But I think that that idea of, I think that even just that queer theory doesn't have a theory of sexuality, I think that in itself will give queer theorists a lot to think about. Yeah, that's... And, and, an interesting statement. And I would Go say, ahead. sorry, Philip, uh, for interrupting you there. Um, yeah. I would say also psychoanalysis doesn't have a theory of sexuality. There are theories of of sexuality. Um, but again, you know, if we go back to Freud and we could go back, for example, to the three essays, um, you know, that is not a comprehensive theory of sexuality. Um, it's it's a it's 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 an account that um, uh, that uh, that we are continuing to pour over today uh, to try and uh, uh, and get a sense of um, the, uh, the the multifarious ways in which sexuality expresses itself in human subjectivity. Um, so you, it would seem that there should be good ground for psychoanalysis or psychoanalyses and queer theory to uh, to find some common ground and to be able to work together. And and also to say that the because the you know, the emphasis is here is on clinical psychoanalysis. Um, uh, we also hope that the, the clinical case study, which is the psychoanalytic tool par excellence, may be something of greater interests now to specialists in gender and sexuality as a mode of thinking about uh, human sex, uh, sexuality in, in decentered terms, and particularly in non-binary and singular ways. Um, and I, I suppose I'm thinking about Ken Corbett's chapter in particular about uh, queer childhood and uh, the wonderful case of Lincoln, which I think is an example of an analyst who doesn't judge his melancholy little protege uh, and who must bear not knowing uh, what the drawing is that Lincoln uh, gives to him and insists it be uh, placed under the shelter of his uh, radiator in his consulting room and, and cre- allows for an, a reflective space uh, to come into being that gives, I think, this this child the mental freedom to express his confusion. And as Corbett says himself, um, he is able to do this because there is no summarizing originary explanation. No summarizing originally ex- originary explanation. There's no, um, uh, there's no, this is not the cause. Uh, this is not the reason. Um, and this is, uh, you know, this is again uh, what, what uh, um, it, it differentiates uh, 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 psychoanalysis and queer theory from, uh, from in particular, essentializing notions of sexuality. And this facilitates a kind of as Corbett puts it, uh, you know, a recontextualizing uh, of, of relations and phantasmatic spaces. So lots of potential there. Yeah, I, I really was interested in that Corbett chapter be, because in the beginning I was struggling with it. But when he got to the clinical vignette, it was just really something lovely about that vignette that was really beautiful i thought and so so since we're in this world of clinical vignettes and um clinical psychoanalysis i guess it's implied already in much of what's been said in this the last what 38 minutes oh wow we're getting to the end um what would you 
if I'm a, a clinician who's really been very exposed, very little to queer theory, let's say listening to this podcast, how do you think reading this book would would change uh, what I'm doing in the consulting room or impact it? Um, that's that's a great question, Philip. It's really a- oh good. I'm glad you said that because I was thinking it sounds so simplistic in some ways. Or but oh, not at all. Broad, I think but- it's a wonderful question, and um, I, I think it's really important we we try to say something about this. Um, and I think Noreen, in a way, has has already spoken to this in in speaking about um, her experience and my and I add to this my own experience of of of, uh, of psychoanalytic uh, clinicians who um, who seem more closed than open to uh, to thinking about sexuality in uh, uh, in non reified ways um, and so um, yeah and that I suppose, in terms of what this book would offer uh, psychoanalysis, uh, 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 those interested in psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic practitioners, I suppose it's it's about, I suppose, keeping up to date um, uh, and reading and thinking widely so that psychoanalysis doesn't become stale and mm-hmm. outdated. As sometimes a perception that, that, that uh, does exist, it is sometimes unfair, sometimes it's not unfair. Um, and... Um, uh, I, you know, there is, I think, uh, uh, you know, to go back to, to, to the conference uh, that Noreen mentioned there at the Freud Museum in, in February of, of this year, February 2018, um, you know, you know, that addressed itself to how social, cultural and historical attitudes towards sexuality impact on the clinic, on transference, on countertransference. And it seems uh, it seemed to us that uh, that our practitioners would benefit immensely from thinking from thinking about these, from thinking much more about this. That there, there is the, the idea there is the idea that that the clinic exists in a kind of bubble, as if it is not somehow trans individual. It is trans individual. We we live in a world where we are uh, impacted, of course, by uh, by. Um, the social, the cultural, and the historical, and uh, we uh, 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 are going to get into trouble if we don't uh, think about what those what those impacts are. Uh, it is our hope that the book will cause practitioners to think about those impacts, uh, to think about their relationship uh, to those uh, to those impacts in a, in a, in a reflective in a reflective way. I think uh, um, just to follow on there from yes. what Eva said that. You know, what you were saying about like a practitioner uh, who's kind of thinking whether, you know, there's so many books are published all the time and whether they should go and buy this one and whether they should spend the time reading it. Um, I suppose maybe just in general terms that when as practitioners, when we enter, when we when we go into the consulting room to meet a patient, we try to open ourselves up for an encounter with the other and that's a very easy thing to say, but I think as all of us know who work clinically, that is actually a very, very difficult thing to do and to remain open to the other and the other's experience and to really sit with that. And I think that this experience of difference has profound and far-reaching effects for all of us as individuals and as a group of psychoanalytic practitioners, because I think the turbulence engendered in us as a result of sitting with uncertainty, um, with sitting with somebody with how, who has a different subjectivity than our own, who is separate, um, that this leads, I think, us in different ways. I'm saying all, I'm making a generalization here, but all of us, it leads us to seek certainty in other aspects of our experience. And we can get stuck on certain ideas so that particular things, I think, become quite concrete and reified. So for some people, it may be sexuality. For other people, it may be something else. And I think that sexuality in particular can become a convenient depository for some of these concretized, unmetabolized and also unthinkable thoughts uh, because... I think it's such an intimate and difficult aspect of experience for most, if not all of us. And I think for a practitioner out there, it's not that they will gain some knowledge about 
LGBT experience or what it's like to work with people who are different than you. But I don't, I think what the book is actually about is how can you turn a mirror on yourself and actually look at what the assumptions that you have about sexuality because of your own mm-hmm. experience or because of what you've been taught and have absorbed and identified with from others. So I think uh, as a practitioner, as an, if you're, if you're thinking about a book to read, I think that's the encounter that we're, hoping that people will have but then it's up to the it's up to the reader whether they have it or not the reader has to has to be willing to to engage and how i guess this has been out about a year or so but can you say anything about how it's been received or is or how you two feel about a follow-up or is it calling for something more yeah well just in terms of when um you asked that there about a follow-up i suppose um what I think of when you say that is I think about uh, film. Um, I watch a lot of films and I teach a lot of film as well. And I think about sequels to films. And I think about how a sequel often comes out um, because it's almost like it's to plug up a gap that's been produ- that has been kind of produced by a demand based on satisfaction. That if people enjoy the film and if it's making loads of money and all the rest, that they will go to produce something else. Um, but as we know, I think from a lot of sequels, um, that satisfaction can very quickly turn to frustration, and that's something that's deemed kind of good can become bad quite quickly. And I suppose the book, for me anyway, and I, I don't know what what you'll think of this Eve, but it's not an end point. It's very much about opening up a space for people to help them to reflect um, and to learn something about their own choices and their own um, desires and reactions. And I think that if it does open up a gap where people would like a sequel. Um, well, I think then the book has done its has done its work. Yeah, so kind of like mission accomplished, and uh, I think it does do that very much. Um, and in fact, you you two asked me via email to give if if we could maybe end with my. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Okay. So yes. What, yeah, we have a question for you question? about that. <laughs> Well, the question is, I mean, we, we, we would love you to say a little bit about, um, you know, your own experience of the book um, um, and what, you know, whether you found anything in the book that was that is useful for your own for your own work. And do, do you think yeah. it's of interest to people? I, I really like books about psychoanalysis, obviously, um, that are are structured as encounters or dialogues or compares and contrasts so this bringing together of these two different discourses psychoanalysis and queer theory to me for some reason that works for me in terms of learning i learned so much more about what psychoanalysis psychoanalysis is from seeing it through the lens of queer theory and then vice versa so that was one thing i really liked um about the book. And, and in fact, um, there's another book I might do next, which is um, a similar encounter between what uh, Kleinian and uh, Winnicottian psychoanalysis, Bob Hinchelwood and Eve uh, or Jan Abram. They don't know that yet, but um, it's a similar kind of discussion. <laughs> okay. It was so fun to see Bob Hinchelwood writing a chapter in your book because I never would have placed him in a book on queer theory, but mm. but mm. He, he did fantastic. Um, yeah. So I like those, yeah. And he loved, he loved, he loved it. He loved, uh-huh, he loved the uh-huh. discourse. He loved the challenge. Yeah. So, so there's the coming together of those two things. But then I think what really opened began to open things up for me and challenge me is the two. I don't know if you call them faces of Freud, the original, um, maybe what we call the the early very revolutionary maybe we could even say queer Freud that sort of shocked the world and disrupted how we thought about things and began to um, put this uh, mystery of sexuality at the center of everything. And then the later, I think Eve calls it the, the, the institutionalized Freudian or the neo-Freudianism, which I think uh, infiltrates so many of us in ways that we don't, always know and recognize and um so i found myself really finding it very refreshing to um to see i think 
and I think Tim Dean's phrase that psychoanalysis is a queer theory is something he said. Um, I think that was really very educational for me. So I really was also enjoyed meeting a lot of new authors and writers that I, I would like to go read more of some of their stuff too. So any, I don't know, any last words from the two of you? Um, well, I suppose I'd be interested. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what you didn't like about the book. Oh, what I didn't like. Well, you know, sometimes queer theory and culture studies can be so abstract and there are occasional paragraphs or pages where I feel stupid and I'm not sure if it's me or if there's something I've just haven't, uh, I'm not far enough along yet, or if there really is maybe something about the writing that's gone off track, but there is a bit of that, um, that I came across in the book, but every book probably has, you know, parts you don't, aren't your cup of tea, but that was my thought. Thank you. I, I, I would say just as a follow up there, uh, Philip, uh, to your uh, mentioning there of psychoanalysis being a, a queer theory, it, it can be. It hasn't always been. It should be. Um, and uh, and uh, and 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 hopefully it it uh, it will be of of, uh, of 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 interest to people in in that sense. Um, and we uh, appreciate uh, so much uh, your invitation to to speak to you today uh, about the book that has uh, that has preoccupied us for the last eight years, um, and that uh, uh, that uh, we are are, are 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 pleased to talk about uh, today with you. Well, I think that's a great way to end with that line that psychoanalysis isn't always a queer theory, but it should be. I think that's definitely a provocative sort of proposition that um, may cause some people to want to open up this book. So um, thank you so very much. You've been listening to an interview with Noreen Giffney and Eve Watson about their book, Clinical Encounters in Sexuality, Psychoanalytic Practice, and Queer Theory, here at the New Books Network. Check out our website and feel free to email me with your comments and questions. Thanks for listening.